0: for this all-day sitting. And um, this weather really uh, brought up for me um, a passage from Zen master Dogen and his, in, from his Shobogenzo, Genzo, uh, which is the treasury of the true Dharma I. Uh, uh, for those who need a refresher, uh, Dogen, Ehe Dogen, was a Japanese Zen master. He was born in the year 1200 and died in the year 1253. Uh, And uh, just a little bit of background on him. Um, His his early life was quite troubled. He was born um, uh, into sort of an aristocratic situation. His father, it says... Was probably um, this this man who was the most influential minister in the imperial court at the turn of that century, Um, and his mother was, um, probably (laughs) as again, the daughter of this other woman who was a former a regent at the court. Um, There's some question about this because they weren't married. So, so, so the, um, there was some kind of affair happening. And Dogen, um, Dogen's father died when he was just three. And then his mother also died when he was eight. So, so right there, you can see how that would set the stage for uh, someone's practice. This is often what brings us to practice is these early experiences of some kind of some kind of disruption. Um, so, so Dogen was quite troubled as a young man. And he found himself at a very young age, the age of 13, with a question. And he put it like this. He says, Both exoteric and esoteric teachings explain that a person, in essence, has true dharma nature and is originally a body of Buddha nature. If so, why do all Buddhas in the past, present, and future arouse the wish for and seek enlightenment?
1: Can you imagine
0: yourself as a 13-year-old asking yourself this question? (laughs) I think I had other questions on my mind at Mm -hmm. that point. Uh, but it, it really shows how deeply Dogen's mind was at work. Um, so he, he went off and, and, and sought um, answers from Buddhist priests, and he really was not satisfied with any of the answers he found from the, from the Buddhism that was available in Japan at the time. And so one of his teachers suggested that he study with a Zen, a Zen teacher, which he did, in Japan. And that Zen teacher eventually um, sanctioned uh, Dogen to teach um, as a very young man. But Dogen was not satisfied with his own understanding. And so he um, left and went to China to, to try to get some true understanding of, of the Dharma. <clears throat> and so he... Um, Went to uh, southern China and studied with Ru Jing, who became his master and saw him through his training. He uh, he studied with Ru Jing, who was sa- uh, said to be a 62 years old at the time, and that was in the summer of 1225. So he was 20, 25 years old. Very early to, to, to embark on such a journey like that. So he continued studying with Ru Jing and then eventually came back to Japan and set up a monastery uh, where he trained monks and lay people as well. He returned to Japan in 1227 so he actually wasn't in China that long. So, he, and he died quite early at 1253. So he was 53 years old when he died. And to put out such a, a I don't know how many of you have gotten into reading some of Dogen's uh, writings in the in the Shobo Genzo in particular... To have such a prolific, such a broad uh, understanding at that age is just incredible. So I thought I'd share a little bit from an essay um, that he wrote called uh, Plum Blossoms. Okay, so he says this. He says, My late master, Old Buddha, so this is referring to Rujing, my late master, Old Buddha, said, the original face has no birth and death. Spring in the plum blossoms and enters into a painting. Spring is in the plum blossoms and enters into a painting. When you paint spring, do not paint willows, plums, peaches, or apricots. Just paint spring. To paint willows, plums, peaches, or apricots is to paint willows, plums, peaches, or apricots. It is not yet painting spring. It is not that spring cannot be painted, but aside from my late master, old Buddha, there is no one in India or China who has painted spring. He alone was a sharp, pointed brush that painted spring. This, quote, spring, is the spring in the painting, because it enters into a painting. He does not use other means, but lets plum blossoms initiate spring. He lets spring enter into a painting and into a tree. This is skillful means. Because my late master, old Buddha, clarified the treasury of the true Dharma eye, he correctly transmitted it to Buddha. Ancestors who assemble in the ten directions of past, present, and future. In this way, he thoroughly mastered the eyeball and opened up on blossoms. By the way, this was written, this particular passage was written when there was three feet of snow on the ground, apparently. So it wasn't yet spring. even though he was experiencing three feet of snow, he was writing about spring. So, of course, spring is in full bloom here. Um, But a few weeks ago, uh, we decided to take on this garden project out here. And so I began looking around a few weeks ago at different nurseries and greenhouses and things going to Lowe's. Looking at plants, and uh, there was nothing that was in bloom, um, or very, very few things. And each of the gardeners who I spoke to, each of the purveyors that I spoke to, assured me that, um, "Give it a few weeks, you <laughs> know. Give it a few weeks; it'll, it'll bloom." Um, it's difficult to see what it will look like when it's not in bloom. It's difficult to imagine what a garden is going to look like before it's planted. And so what Dogen is pointing us to here is this blooming or blossoming of our own practice. That even when it's not apparent to us, even though, even when we can't see it, when the blossoms have not come out, it is still there. This true nature is still there. He says plum blossoms, even in the deep winter, still contain the spring. As dormant as they might be, they're still there. So in Zen practice, we have this dichotomy that we must always work with. This constant tension that we have to work with. On the one hand, we um, are told that the spring is always contained there. It's always present. This true nature is always here. And yet, it's not our experience. Our experience is something very different our experience is feeling anything but complete. And so we have to wrestle with that dichotomy. We have to come to some resolution. Why is it that I feel so flawed and yet I'm told that Buddha nature is right here. And this is exactly what Dogen's question was when he was 13. You know, I hear all these teachings and yet Why is it that these guys seek after it if it's always present? (laughs) What are we seeking after? So it's true, we have to make an effort in our practice. But it's not a striving. It's not a strained effort. But it's really a diligent questioning. Yogan, in his passage, he says, when you paint spring, do not paint willows, plums, peaches, or apricots. Just paint spring. To paint willows, plums, peaches, or apricots is to paint willows, plums, peaches, or apricots. It is not yet painting spring. So this is what he's saying to us is that our practice is not about the thoughts of practice it's about the actual experience of practice our ideas it's not about our ideas of the present moment it's about the present moment when somebody once said to me you know what I decided, this is when I was very young, Uh, I think we were probably like 18 or something, a friend of mine said, I realized, you know, I'm not in love with this girl that I've been seeing. I'm just in love with the idea of being in love. (sighs) I just like the idea of it. But I'm actually not. Uh, This this is a pretty common thing, that we we become enamored with our thoughts about things rather than things themselves. this is very common with the romanticizing of practice, of Zen practice. A lot of people come to practice with very romantic notions and it sounds so beautiful. And yet when they actually put butts to cushion, it it becomes much more uh, a different experience. So so, So our ideas about things and the thing itself are often miles apart. And so our practice is really about bringing those together And it's like bringing palm to palm. (coughs) So they become one reality. Do you remember those um, paintings from uh, the 19... I think it was from the 1990s. They were computer print-offs. There were these computer-generated images. And um, I I looked it up, and I think they're called... Auto stereo, audio stereograms or auto stereograms and what they, if you look at it it doesn't make any sense, it just looks like a kind of an abstract thing, right? Just kind of pixels and colors and all kinds of things it, but if you stare at it in a certain way then all of a sudden this image pops forward, this three dimensional image do you guys remember those things? Yeah. And you know One of the things that you have to do... I I remember some people struggling and they could never get it. They could never see the image, right? It became one of these struggles. There you go, (laughs) right? Um, Because apparently what you have to do... I I read about this. You have to um, overcome um, what is being called normal automatic coordination between our focus or what's called accommodation... And horizontal virgins, which is the angle of your eyes. But really, when we boil it down, what we have to do is actually just relax. We have to stare at it, but then we have to relax. Like if we're, if we're looking for the image, well, we won't find it, will we? Like if we're, we're searching too hard, we're always going to be focusing the eyes, going, where is it? Where is it? By the way, this is a very common thing in Zen practice people struggle with, is where do I do, what do I do with my eyes when I'm sitting? Because our consciousness seems to come forward very uh, at the tips of our eyes, like our self, our sense of self is very tied in with the eyes and the, this taking in. And, and so it's very hard to let go. You know, It's a very active sense organ. It's always searching, looking. What's, what's over there? Right? Of course, the the hearing can be the same way. It can be searching with the ears, um, but less so. It kind of things can fade with the with the sense of hearing, but with the eyes, we're looking. Right, and so, like with these paintings, we have to look, but not look. We have to look, but not look. This is this is a very hard thing, to to focus intensely but get out of the way, right? How do we do that in our practice? How do we maintain our focus in our presence but not have it as a self-activity, another activity of me? It can seem almost um, contradictory, but when we focus completely on our koan or our breath practice or our awareness practice, and yet we relax, what happens is we end up um, we end up excluding the self. We end up uh, creating a very interesting openness of the mind. We're so focused on something that everything else gets excluded. There's nothing else. There's just the practice, the breath, the awareness, the koan, whatever our, um, whatever our focus is in Zazen. We exclude everything else to that practice. And in that experience comes an openness. Because we're not there. The we is not there. And so this, when we generate this internal focus, we're actually freeing ourselves up from this sort of tyrannical, very oppressive, very oppressive force of the self that really constantly wants to grasp onto things, constantly wants to take a hold And so when we begin to loosen from that, loosen ourselves from that grip, we begin to see things for what they are. It's a replacement process. We're replacing the self with this. So in this way, We are becoming the things themselves. And this is what Dogen's talking about when he says we're no longer painting plum blossoms or peach blossoms. We're painting spring. We're no longer the ideas of plum blossoms or peach blossoms. We are the spring itself. So Dogen continues, he says, if it is not that spring, not be painted, but aside from my late master, old Buddha, there is no one in India or China who has painted spring. That's an interesting little sentence there. So what is what is Dogen saying? Is he saying that Ru Jing, his old master in China, was the only one who could paint spring? Like he's the only one with deep experience that can lose himself. To me, Dogen is pointing to the absolute side of things, the absolute nature of reality. When we first begin practice, we can feel like a beginning painter. It it can feel very foreign. Like we sit down with our canvas and we just don't know what to do. We get um, our, maybe our set of watercolor paints or oil paints or whatever and our brushes and we have an idea of what we want to paint. But we have a kind of self-conscious overlay that gets put over the process of painting. We're kind of unsure about what to do. And so because of that self-consciousness, what we do is we end up grasping for answers. We, we try. We want to we get a hold of it. We, nobody likes to be a beginner in something. Everybody wants to be the master. And in, so instead of maintaining this open mind of the beginner, we grasp. I want to I understand it. I want to get it. I want to go for it. I want to become an expert painter right away. There's a... I think I've mentioned this a few times recently and I don't know why I'm so enamored with this. I saw a video of a teacher um, named Shinzen Young. He's a Vipassana teacher. He has some Zen experience as well. And he contrasted Vipassana with Zen. And he said that Vipassana practice in some ways is... Is much it gives you much more of a scaffolding, much more of a, a set of instructions about how to practice, and it's kin to he said painting by numbers, sort of like these drawings that are drawn out with little numbers, and you put purple there and blue here and orange and. such. But Zen practice, he said, is you just sit down with your canvas and you just paint. You're just throwing paint on the on the canvas but that's and, and 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 his point is that it's much more of a it's much more of a difficult practice in that sense because we all want to paint by numbers we all want these clear instructions and yet when we do that it lacks that vital in, in that vitality it takes away that expression that creative expression that's possible when we just paint and the other thing that is true about that is when we paint by numbers, when we're following somebody else's instructions, dit, 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 you know, we're painting somebody else's painting. We're not painting our own painting. But any good artist um, loses themselves in the process of painting. In other words, it's impossible to tell. Where the person stops and where the painting begins. Or where the paintbrush ends and the paint begins. So in this process, when we stop craving that painting by numbers and we simply let ourselves go into the process of painting, there is no self and other. There is no object-subject-object duality. We simply lose ourselves. So do you see what Dogen is saying when he says, there's nobody in, in India or China that paints like this. In other words, there is no person. There is only just one. There's only one old Buddha. Who is it? Who's the old Buddha that he's referring to? So he continues in his passage, he says, um, he alone was the sharp pointed brush who painted spring. The spring is spring in the painting because it enters into a painting. He does not use any other power, but lets plum blossoms activate spring. He alone was the sharp pointed pointed brush, who painted spring. So it is really crucial that our practice becomes sharp and pointed. That we use the practice like a sharp and pointed brush to sort of cut through over and over again. It's really speaking to the way we can use our practice. This, um, but but if, we, if, if we tease it apart for just a second, we can, we can think of the way we focus and practice in two different ways. Of course, they're not really different, but if we just, for ex- explanation purposes, we tease it apart for a second. We can either practice with like a laser-like focus, which, which I spoke to earlier, to the exclusion of all other things. Or, we can focus on everything to the exclusion of focusing on one thing. The first kind of practice, this laser-like focus, where everything gets channeled into just the practice of the breath or the koan, this is um, this is the approach of the Rinzai school, and then the shikantaza practice. This um, the other second type is this opening up to everything that is around us and through us. And the second type of practice of shikantaza of focusing to you know on everything at once. Where there is no, uh, the mind does not rest in one place, but simply is expansive. It's very difficult. Yasutani Roshi, um, who is Philip Kaplow's teacher, um, described um, Shikantaza like this He said, The practice of just sitting is like walking in a crowded marketplace, balancing a jug of water on your head trying not to spill a drop. You need to be aware of everything. If your mind just focuses on one thing, you miss something else. If you just focus on the kid on the pogo stick in front of you, you don't notice the donkey with its huge baskets of dried peppers walking on the other side, and it will bump you and cause you to spill your water. You have to be aware of everything. All the merchants, the shoppers, the children, the animals. If you are too loose and you're not paying attention, you'll spill the water. If you're too tight and somebody just slightly bumps you, you'll spill it too. You need the right tension to help you concentrate. And then he later added to this, he said, By the way, there's a soldier walking behind you with a drawn sword. And if you spill a single drop, he'll cut off your head. That's how much energy you should be putting into your Zazen. The more energy you put in, the more energy it will give back to you. So, Whatever our practice is, whether it's koan or shikantaza or breath, um, we the intent is really the same. We want to exhaust our life energy into it. Why hold anything in reserve? Why? Why would we save anything for later? We put every ounce of energy into our sitting. Really, when we do that, Yasutani is right. We actually gain energy back. It's it's very um, um, fear producing for people because we always have a sense that we need to keep something in the reserve tank, and you know just in case, right? You know, we're worried that if we just give ourselves a hundred percent, that somehow. We're gonna end up in a disaster. Like, um, I can't. I can't stop thinking of completely because. You know, what will happen? I'll end up an idiot or something. I, you know, I'll, I'll come somehow forget uh, myself, and I'll. And, and I, I don't know. There's some weird fear that I have. It's complete nonsense, <laughs> really. So Dogen continues, he says, the spring is the spring in the painting because it enters into a painting. He does not use any other power, but lets plum blossoms activate spring. He lets spring enter into a painting and into a tree. This is his skillful means. For the first number of years of Zen practice, it's really common for for us to want to judge our own practice. Really um, evaluate it. I think this is, I remember this um, with a friend of mine. He would come up to me almost after every period of sitting, every, after every um, sitting at the Zen Center, he'd say, How was your sitting? <laughs> you know, or How was your sushin? You know, that's a common question. How did sushin go for you? You know, this is, Sashin's are our deep, intensive periods. How was Sashin? Oh, it was pretty good. You know? Oh, yeah. Oh, mine was horrible. You know? How do you know? How do you know? You know? But this is, this is seeing our Zen practice through that lens of good and bad. What happens over time as people mature in practice is you just stop asking the question. You just don't care anymore how your practice is. It's not good or bad. It's just practice, right? So if you're doing that, if you're evaluating your practice, like this round I couldn't concentrate, or, oh, darn it, I wish I had been more uh, open last all day sit or whatever, you can drop that. It doesn't matter. Because in that way, when we're doing that, we haven't entered the painting. We haven't entered spring. We're still standing outside of the painting, as Dogen says. There's a teacher, Seki uh, Harada, who is the current abbot of Hoshinji Monastery in Japan. And Hoshinji is where another Harada Roshi uh, first trained Philip Kaplow. So we have a kind of a, uh, a strand of Dharma connection there. Uh, he said this. He said, the objective of Zen practice is to graduate as quickly as possible from Zazen and return to the time before you knew anything about Zazen. Isn't that awesome? He said, some people become intoxicated with Zazen and in this way lose sight of their real self. They mistakenly fall into the habit of thinking that, what they are doing, that they are doing zazen wholeheartedly. Such people are a long way from true practice. Others mistakenly teach that zazen is very good for your whole life and simply ask people to sit. However, if zazen is not free of all viewpoints, such as good and bad, it isn't real, the real thing. It is alright, though, to take time off from your busy life and work in order to develop your powers of concentration by absorbing yourself wholeheartedly into your Zen practice. Yeah, so freeing ourselves from all viewpoints, good and bad. If we're impatient with the spring if we're impatient with our gardens or our paintings, we will never enter in. We're always checking, constantly checking to see, if, have the blossoms come out yet? Have they come yet? No. Oh, okay, go check again. No, not yet. Right? And so we, we try to force our blossoming force it. But in, in either case, if we're if we're uh, trying to force it by checking, or if we're trying to, the other way we can do it, you know, the other way we can uh, get those blossoms going is to create an artificial environment, right, where we create a greenhouse and we, we can get things to come out when they shouldn't. But in either case, what we're doing is we're practicing impatience. That's what we're reinforcing when we do that kind of practice. We're reinforcing our own impatience. We want to be very careful about reinforcing habits. And one of those habits is not being patient with ourselves. So Dogen finishes, speaking of impatience, I better finish. Dogen finishes the passage and he says, because my late Master Old Buddha clarified the treasury of the Trumadharma eye, he correctly transmitted it to the Buddhas and ancestors who assembled in the ten directions of past, future, and present. In this way, he thoroughly mastered the eyeball and opened up plum blossoms. <coughs> Mastering the eyeball. It's <laughs> not an interesting phrase. Mastering the eyeball. What does it mean to master seeing? Or master hearing? Or thinking? Or touching? To master it? Usually when we see something we impose our ideas on it. When we see something, we immediately label it. Oh, cushion, candle, Buddha figure, flowers. And then with that, in the back of the mind, there's not only just the label, cushion, but there's all the associations with it from our memory. All the cushions, bad and good experiences on the cushion. Perhaps looking at the candle we remember when we burned ourselves, or we left a candle burning when we shouldn't have <laughs> or we look at the flowers and think wow how beautiful I remember this. So when we see we not only label but we bring all of our associations and impose them onto things. mastering the eyeball really is seeing without that process, just seeing, without the attachment of all the other things that we put onto it. And when we do that, when we are able to be free from that labeling and association process, we let each thing stand in its own light without us. Each thing is trying to speak to us. It's trying to show us something. Each thing is trying to reveal its wholeness to us. But we can't ever experience that if we're superimposing ourself onto it. When we get free of that, then we're open, and then all the actually all the plum blossoms open by themselves. So we're just about out of time. Um, So what we'll do is we'll we'll stop here, recite the four vows. And then just as a reminder of the schedule, we'll have uh, one more sitting period before the uh, caretaking. And then we'll go from the caretaking into the lunch period. And so I think after the caretaking, we'll clean up, there'll be a bell that signals the end of the caretaking practice or a drum that will signal around, gives you time to wash up and things. And then people may go, Straight to the kitchen, there'll be a buffet kind of set up with bowls and plates and getting salad and bread and uh, soup. And then you can eat wherever you'd like, um, outside or on the benches out here, or picnic table. And um, and then another drum will signal the end of the lunch and rest period and signal us to come back into the Zendo for the afternoon. Okay. So we'll stop here and recite the four vows. The four vows are on page 36. <coughs>
1: Four vows. All beings without number, I